Let's pray. Lord, what a somber text you have put before us today. It's hard to imagine what that night would have been like. Lord, it's hard to think of what your son endured. We have now embarked upon a long string of somber texts. And so, Lord, we want to approach it reverently. But, Lord, we also want to see the glory and the joy that is behind the text. For the son who endured and suffered and was betrayed for us is the one who provided for our redemption. We glory in you that you have seen fit to save for yourself a people. And that, Lord, you have done it in the only way, which was to have God himself, the Son of God, lay down his life for sinners. Help us to see the significance of this and to recognize Jesus for the treasure that he is this morning. And I pray this in his name. Amen. The more decades you add to your life, the more likely you are to have been stung by the sting of betrayal. The loved one who abandons you, the good friend who suddenly turns against you. These are the sad relational realities of living in a sin-cursed world. And I would guess that most of you here today have experienced this to some degree or another. But what we find this morning is a Savior who can fully sympathize with such bitter treachery. For he felt the sting of betrayal at a level that is beyond our comprehension. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the Son of God to travel around Israel performing divine ministry and heavenly miracles with 12 disciples at his side, all the while knowing that one of them was a devil. Or what it must have been like on this last night before his horrid death to share a meal, to even share a dish with that same man who would betray him in just a few short hours. Indeed, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and his great distress was experienced even here at this Last Supper. To betray is to reject. And make no mistake, rejection is what happened to Jesus here by Judas. Judas made a choice. And his choice is perhaps the clearest example of bad decision-making that you will ever find. For he rejected the source of all goodness, even the source of life itself, for a small measure of money. And my appeal to you is so simple today. Don't make the same mistake. There are two points that I hope to bring out from our text this morning. Number one... To reject Jesus is to select a lesser treasure. And number two, to reject Jesus is to refuse a great salvation. Number one this morning, to reject Christ is to select a lesser treasure. 
Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Note, first of all, the betrayal itself. It was not the chief priests or any of the Sadducees or any of the scribes and Pharisees who approached Judas here. For it was he who went to them. He sought them out. No one tricked him. No one took measures to deceive him. And no one twisted his arm. Out of his own counsel and of his own volition, it seems, Judas decided to sell Jesus over. Now we know he was a man of low character, for he had been stealing from Jesus and from the rest of the twelve disciples for quite a while. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, it says in verse 4 that Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, it says in parentheses, said... Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6 says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It is quite clear from this what Judas ultimately wanted in life. He wanted earthly gain. And this turned him into a thief. We also know that the label betrayer is how Judas was known by the other disciples in the years after these events and even down to this day, our day. Notice how Matthew himself recorded the name of Judas back in chapter 10. It says in chapter 10, verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. He, he lists off the apostles. He says, first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simeon, Simon, excuse me, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It seems the rest of the disciples can't even say the name Judas Iscariot without somehow lumping it with the word betrayal. Indeed, Judas will forever be the villain of villains, for even today, to call someone a Judas is a terrible accusation and is offensive. This man, he went to the chief priests, the highest rulers in the city of Jerusalem, the men who oversaw the temple sacrifices and who were meant to lead God's people in a right worship. He went to them, and knowing their hatred of Jesus, in verse 15, he asked them a question. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And though Matthew's account doesn't include the reaction of these men, these evil men, we know from the other gospel accounts that they responded to Judas's question with some wicked delight. They were glad to hear this. And so they agreed to pay him 30 pieces of silver to deliver Jesus over to them. This is the same amount that was given to the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 11 of your Old Testament for his service to the people of Israel. 
It was a sad amount which that prophet scoffed at before the people and even threw away before them towards the potter. This was also the amount that was directed under the law of Moses to be given for the death of a slave. This amount, likely worth somewhere in the neighborhood of just a few months' wages, was a paltry sum, and it reveals the low value that both Judas and the chief priest placed upon Jesus. Well, once the cruel bargain was made, Judas set his mind to fulfilling his side of the deal. As you perhaps recall from verses 3 and 4, a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus in secret, away from the great crowds who were then in Israel for the Passover. They feared how the people would react if they arrested Jesus out in open daylight where everyone could see them. And here is where Judas became so handy, for he was now looking for a most opportune time to betray Jesus to his accusers. Like many through the ages, you may be asking, what was his reason for doing this? Why did he just sell Jesus over like this? This is shocking. Well, we certainly know that greed was a key factor, for it was money that he had been stealing, and it was money that he was now seeking from the priests. And greed, as I'm sure you well know, has proven itself to be a powerful motivator for all sorts of evil among mankind. But as I've mentioned numerous times before as we've walked through this Gospel of Matthew, there was a heightened expectation in that day that the Jewish Messiah would bring deliverance from the foreign oppression who reigned over Israel in that time, the Roman Empire. And though we certainly cannot say with any conviction, perhaps... Judas was so dissatisfied with the Messiah whom Jesus turned out to be that he decided to just give up and get whatever he could for all of his trouble. And if this is true, I do not think this was an excuse for Judas as I think it actually makes matters worse for him because he would then be rejecting Jesus because he wanted Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah. He wanted a different Jesus. He's not satisfied with God's provision. He wants something else. Now let's get a glimpse that we'll see in a couple of sermons from now and witness what happens next with this man. If you'll look at verse 47 of this same chapter, 26, verse 47, it says this. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. With the kiss of a friend, Judas betrayed the king of all glory. And with the painful word, friend, Jesus told him, do what you came to do. Can you just for a moment try to think about the relational and emotional sorrow and tension that is happening at that point? Of what that must have been like 
for someone he had so invested in, so, shown so much love, who had witnessed so much, now coming to him and not just merely pointing and handing him over, but greeting him with a kiss. And what does Jesus say? Oh, friend, do what you came to do. Now witness the final despair of this man. Flip over to the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 27, and look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Though Judas knew that he had sinned, he did not turn to a merciful God, but he chose instead to sin again by taking the very life which God himself had given to him. He doesn't fall down at the feet of Jesus. He strings up a rope. He goes to a place of despair with no true contrition of heart, no actual remorse, no sorrow and repentance. This was a man who was all about himself, and he had blown it. But back in chapter 26, notice the contrast between Judas and the beautiful woman whom he considered in our last message. If you reflect upon the beginning of verse 14, the first verse in our text this morning, in chapter, 20, chapter 26, if you reflect upon verse 14, you'll see that Matthew attempts to connect the betrayal of Judas to the adoring woman that he had mentioned back in verses 6 through 13. Look carefully at verse 14. It says, Then one of the twelve. The word then serves here, in this context at least, as a connecting point. Matthew is providing for us, his readers, a narrative contrast. He's going one story after another, and he's connecting these two. They're meant to be seen next to each other. There's meant to be a contrast between this woman and this man. We are meant to consider this woman side by side with Judas and evaluate their distinct attitudes towards Christ. Look at what verse 10 says about this woman. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. In verse 7, she had bought, she had brought an alabaster flask full of expensive ointment to Jesus. And she poured it out upon his head as a sign of her great appreciation for and her high valuation of Jesus. And Jesus says this was a beautiful thing that she did. She recognized his worth, and she made a sacrifice to show his worth in her eyes. You see, she loved Jesus. She was thankful that he was the Messiah. She was glad that he had come, and she was willing to demonstrate her affection by surrendering a great expense before him. Now consider the contrast between these two individuals. This beautiful woman paid a high price to honor the priceless one, whereas Judas received a paltry price to dishonor that same one. This woman saw Jesus as the treasure that he is and placed him before her earthly possessions. But Judas 
Judas saw Jesus as something of a disappointment, I think, and placed earthly gain before the Lord of glory. He rejected Jesus by selecting a lesser treasure. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas did not appreciate Jesus in his heart like the beautiful woman of verse 10 because he traded him in for a small measure of earthly gain. But understand, my friends, this same transaction has been replayed over and over and over again in the hearts of people who reject the suffering Savior for the fleeting pleasures of sin who refuse to embrace Christ in repentance and faith out of a thirst for temporary, deceitful satisfaction. And like Judas, all such people have their sad, disappointing reward. This world is full of people, full of people, who though God has revealed himself to them in remarkable ways, have rebelled against God and have chosen trinkets in spite of his treasure. This world is full of people like us who have chosen earthly rewards over the reward of God that is found in relationship with him. And I must confess to you today that I betray Jesus every time I exchange my treasure of him for any measure of sinful pleasure. Whenever I take him and put him to the side and place something else up, no matter what that thing is, I betray my Lord. It is right, my friends, to judge Judas harshly for what he did, but I must confess, I too am Judas. And the proper place for me to turn is not the despair of self-harm like that foolish man but the forgiveness of a crucified Christ. To go to the one who endured harm for me. To go to the one who shed his blood for someone who deserved to have my blood shed. To go to the cross he went to pay for me a sinner, for a guy like me, one who's a lot like Judas. And my friends, you are Judas too. Don't make the same mistake. You too have surrendered the glory of God for the sake of your own earthly desires. You too have gone your own way as a rebel before God. And your only recourse, the only place you can turn, is to the Christ who is uplifted on a cross to pay for all of your sins, past, present, and future. That you might be forgiven, redeemed, and have life in him forever. So that you would be Judas no more, but that you would be saint before God. Because the righteousness of Christ becomes your righteousness. That's the first point today. The second point is to reject Christ, is to refuse a great salvation. Verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now note, first of all, the message of the Passover. 
The Passover was the feast held by the Jews every year at that time to commemorate God's past deliverance of his people from their bondage to the people of Egypt. And this is the event that is held here by Christ and his disciples. And this event, my friends, was laden with symbolism and was profoundly significant for what Jesus was about to endure on the cross. I want you to see this firsthand. I know some of you have heard this for many years. Some of you, this may be the very first time. I would invite you to hold your hand here and turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. It's page 50 if you're using a pew Bible. Exodus chapter 12, page 50 in our church pew Bible. And look with me at Exodus 12, the first 13 verses of that chapter. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God determined to bring his judgment down upon the Egyptians because of their sin against, his, sin against him and their sin against his people. Because God is right to judge sinners. But here in Exodus chapter 12, he showed his grace to Israel. Because he provided for them a way to have his judgment, his rightful judgment, pass over them. If they would slaughter a spotless, perfect-looking lamb 
and spread its blood upon the doorframe of their houses, God would then pass over them and not bring his hand of judgment down upon them. Now, if you don't know the rest of the story, that sounds pretty strange. God had a purpose behind it. He showed them a picture, and in that picture he tells them, if the lamb's blood is shed, if it's shed for you, the judgment of God will pass over you. Thus, we have the name Passover. But as important as this event was in its own right to the Israelites, it was an event that was laden with symbolism, which pointed to a later and a better Passover that was to come. On the day of the Passover meal, if you go back to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, on the day of the Passover meal, or as verse 17 says, the first day of unleavened bread, on the day of the Passover meal, the spotless lamb, which had been prepared, was now on that day sacrificed, and its blood was spilled out, and then its flesh was eaten. And God, God had arranged for this to be the precise moment when his own son would be handed over by the betrayer to enemies, that he might be, my friends, a better sacrifice for you and for me. The Gospel of John, in the first chapter of that Gospel, John the Baptist says something extraordinary. It says in John 1.29 that the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The picture of blood put upon the mantle of the shed blood of a spotless lamb is but a picture, it's but an arrow that points forward to the Son of God, the perfect, spotless, sinless one who is called the Lamb, who would shed his blood on a cross in payment for your sins and mine so that when God looks down upon me, a sinner, a Judas like me, he passes over and his judgment is no longer for me. And the same for you. Jesus is the true and the better Passover lamb. He is the lamb to whom all those others pointed. And the message of the Passover is that what God would send is a better lamb for a better sacrifice who would provide a complete forgiveness for sins. No longer would this need to be done year by year. No, now, now this picture would be perfected in the Son who would forever pay the price for the sin debt of sinners like me and you, if you will receive him. But note in chapter 26, the providential arrangement of all of this in verses 17 through 19, which we've already read. Though Jesus may have simply made these arrangements on his own ahead of time, we get the sense here, I think, that all of these preparations came about through the Lord's guiding, providential hand behind the scenes he was working. His disciples asked Jesus where he would eat the Passover meal. And he told them to go into Jerusalem where they would find a certain man. Now this is all somewhat mysterious, I think. He doesn't tell them the man's name. He doesn't say something like, I had a conversation earlier today with a guy named Reuben. Go to him. He's on the edge of town. Ask him. He'll prepare everything. He doesn't say that. Rather, he sets them on somewhat of an unknown course. Well, they were to go into the city and say to this man, 
The teacher says, note the words, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The other Gospels tell us a little bit more at this point. But Matthew seems intent to communicate Jesus' declaration, my time is at hand. That it was now time, finally, at long last, after all of the preparation, the decades of preparation while Jesus was on earth, the Son of Man was about to accomplish the very task for which he came. His time was now at hand. It was now right for him to endure the suffering of sinners. Everything happens here according to God's sovereign plan and timing. It always does, as we sang about a little bit ago, but here especially, everything happens according to God's sovereign plan and timing. God ordained that Jesus would come and be the Lamb of God who would shed his blood in payment for your sins. And he planned this since before he founded the earth. Now note the revealing meal, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. We have a devastating revelation here by Jesus in verse 20. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He now reveals what he had already known, that his betrayer was at hand in that very room, eating at that very table. Grasp this. Jesus knowingly broke bread with the man who would soon escort armed enemies to his location. The same man Jesus had once welcomed into his special group of 12. Oh, the glory of the wisdom and the timing of God's, but how terrible the reality that his intimate table was occupied by such a foe and so corrupted by such a man. And to this revelation, we now hear a heart-wrenching question for each of his disciples. Is it I, Lord? Literally, this is something like, surely not I, Lord, as the statement in the Greek original carries a negative phrasing to it. Something like, certainly, Lord, you can't be referring to me. Now, keep in mind, verse 56 tells us that when Jesus was arrested, each and every one of these disciples fled and left him. True, they did not betray him like Judas, but they certainly cowered away out of fear for their own lives. But here in verse 22, each man is aghast to think that it could possibly be he who would betray the Lord. And finally, we see the finger of judgment pointed, though Jesus speaks with somewhat ambiguous language in verse 23. He answered and said, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me 
will betray you. This dish was likely the common dish, which would have been used by all the men at the meal, where they would dip bread into it to retrieve a mixture of fruit and bitter herbs. Jesus is making the point that it is the man who is dipping his hand in the dish with me. He's the man, the very man who is eating with me at the table. We break bread, I pass to him, and we dip in the dish together. Now, even, even we understand that when we have a meal with someone, there's an intimacy there. There's a relational component. There's a depth that's there. In that culture, it's all the more. To eat with someone was a huge deal. And this man, his betrayer, sits there with bread in his hand, dipping in the same dish. He's the very man eating with Christ our Lord at the table. And then Jesus says something sobering. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. Woe to that man. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, Jesus is going to perform the sacrificial task exactly as the Scriptures promised that he would. But woe, sorrow eternally to the man who led up to the task, who brought about the task, who made this task come to the reality, Jesus says it would be better to have not been born than to be such a man. What sorrow, what sorrow here. And finally, Judas speaks. He says, is it I, Rabbi? This is the same phrasing as the other disciples, only he uses a more intimate term, rabbi, which was the affectionate term used by students toward their good teacher. Certainly not I, my good teacher. This too is dishonest because Judas knew full well that he himself was the very betrayer Jesus spoke of. And Jesus said, you have said so, which is something like, you have said it, not I. Your words have declared it. Oh, the sorrow. The sorrow here between Jesus and one of his twelve. Judas rejected Jesus, and he thereby rejected the greater Passover. Judas rejected Jesus and thus despised the perfect sacrifice Judas rejected Jesus, and, then, and thus he refused a great salvation. To reject Jesus is just that. To reject Jesus, my friends, is to refuse a great salvation. God has provided us a great salvation, a deliverance, a love, and a forgiveness, and a redemption that we do not deserve. He has provided for it in Jesus Christ. And to refuse it is to refuse the greatest gift that could ever be extended. The perfect spotless Lamb of God was slain for sinners. Do you have any idea the agony it must have caused Christ to be separated from the Father on the cross in order to bear your sins upon himself while he died upon that tree? The agony he endured for you, the gift that he now provides through his shed blood and his powerful resurrection for you. Judas, he rejected it. And any who do reject a great salvation. To reject the suffering Savior who went to the cross for rebels like us is to refuse the only hope of salvation. There is no other way to be right with God. 
There is no other way to get God. There is no other way to get to heaven. There is no other way at the end of your days to find joy at the end when your body goes to sleep. The only way is through Jesus Christ, the one who provides the glorious way for you. As Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other place to turn. There is no treasure that could ever make us satisfied. There is no other Messiah that could ever fulfill our hopes. There is no other place that we can turn to find rightness with God. The only place is the place that has been provided, which is Jesus Christ. So here is the exhortation. Don't reject Jesus. Some of you have sat in these pews for decades. Don't reject Jesus. Some of you are here because your parents made you. Don't reject Jesus. Some of you are here because you're questioning. The offer is extended before you. Jesus is here. He has shown himself through his word. Don't reject Jesus. Brother or sister in Christ who has walked with Jesus to the end of your days, but here you are, wondering about the pain, wondering if God is good, wondering if it's all been worth it. My friend, don't reject Jesus. Some of you have felt the sting of betrayal. You have known what it is like to see a loved one turn their back on you. You have known what it is like to entrust yourself to a friend, though it might be really hard for you to do so and to see that friend eventually stiff arm you. You know what that is like. Jesus knows it better. And Jesus endured that. And more than that, he endured the cross for you. Oh, my friend, don't reject Jesus. Go to the one who not only knows betrayal, but the one who went and paid the price for betrayers like you. Don't reject Jesus. Don't trade him for other messiahs. Don't think that there's other people, other places to which you can turn. There are not. He is the only one. And don't exchange him for earthly gain because you get a very short amount of years on this place. As one of our elders mentioned here on this platform, We've had some loss in the last couple of months. We have felt the sting of life, that it's so very short, that the grass is here, and then it withers, and it fades, and like a flower, it shows its beauty, and then it's gone. Life is very, very short, and eternity is very, very long. Do not exchange Jesus for some temporary earthly gain. The trinkets are not worthy of his treasure. Oh, see the Savior. See the Savior, embrace him by repenting of your sins and believing in him, and you will be saved. See the Savior, hold tight to him until the end, and one day you will see him face to face, and you will see my treasure, my glory, my God. Let's pray. Lord, let no one in this room reject Jesus. Let no one leave here today not having received Jesus. Let no one leave here today without seeing the mighty, magnificent worth of Jesus and embracing him until the end of their days. Lord, I can do nothing to bring that about, but you can. I pray that you would honor yourself by saving a people even through Riverside today.
and I pray these things in the mighty name of your Son.